So if if you're over the age of 35, you know what this is. If you're not, like this, this might look confusing to you, but this is called a VCR, all right? Um, and uh, it, it's, uh, it was before like you watch YouTube and Netflix, if you wanted to watch a movie before you went to like that, the red box thing or whatever it is where you got to the grocery store and you would get the DVD. Before even DVDs, they came on video cassettes, VHS tapes. And so you had to put it in one of these. And, and um, I remember just not too long ago, I was watching some of these, some old family videos with my kids, and, and they were like, what is this thing? Like, and I was like, well, this was right after cave drawings. Like, this was how, this is how you watched a movie, and, and this is what it was. And, and, uh, and so my kids were like looking at it. They were like, wow, what is this thing? And then like the whole rewinding thing was just fascinating to them. You had, they were like, you had to have this happen every time. I was like, if you didn't, you paid a fine. If you didn't rewind it and you went back to the, to the blockbuster, you had to pay them uh, to rewind it for you. And I was like, well, that, that, you know, that's what it was. It was a VHS, VCR. I remember one time in particular, as VCRs were kind of fading out and DVDs were the thing, I remember in that transition where um, these things were like a dime a dozen. Nobody really cared about them anymore. They were just getting rid of them, tossing them uh, in the trash. And I was watching one of the family videos. I was probably like 16 years old, and uh, we, we were watching one. And the, the VHS tape got stuck inside of it. Has it ever happened to you? It got stuck inside of it. I couldn't get it out. And I was looking at it, and I was like, the, the VCR was not worth near as much to me as the, the tape was. And so I decided to, like, take it apart, right? So I, I, I took it apart in, in an effort to, to get, like, the tape out of it because the tape was stuck. And so I, I just kept, like, taking pieces apart until I could get to the point where I could just physically remove the, the, the tape. And I remember looking at it. It was far more deconstructed than this was. And I remember just looking at the pile of it all when I got done. I got the tape out, and I was like, good. And I looked at it all, and I was like, I don't know that I'm going to be able to get that back together. Like there's just wires and, and like little chip pieces and, and things that look like they were supposed to not be broken that were broken. I, I was just like, I don't, I don't know. Like I had deconstructed it to a point where I really didn't know what to do. So I, I just ended up getting rid of it because I knew that I, I probably couldn't put it back together in a way that it would function and it work the way that it was supposed to. And it just wasn't nearly as valuable to me. So I just kind of let it go. Um, and, and we start with this because what we're going to talk about today is, is, is a touchy subject. Nick, Nick alluded to it. We're going to talk about this one-story idea of gender and what gender is from the biblical perspective. And um, as we do that, I understand that you may have heard sermons on this before, and, and maybe it was, it was in, in a tone or in an attitude that was off-putting to you. I, I want us to look at it from the perspective of, of what I think humanity has done with with us as people as we sort of, in an effort to make sense of it all, we've deconstructed it and we've taken like all the pieces and we're like, you know, okay, so our identities over here and, and sexuality's over here and then, and then our gender's part of this component. And I feel like there's, there's this reality where we look at how we've deconstructed everything to such a minute level where it's like, we don't really know what to do with it now. And it doesn't really seem to work together. It doesn't really seem to make sense. And so I think there's a lot of confusion. I think there's a lot of misunderstanding. And so I, I want to I approach this from the perspective where, where we can look from the Scriptures, what the Scripture teaches, where I think all of these components fit together in a way that makes sense, in a way that allows us to sort of function and flourish as, as human beings. Because 
right now it's just kind of, if, if you read the news, you follow what's going on, it, it feels sort of disjointed and like things don't really make sense anymore and who knows what to say about what and, and how do we even understand what people say about gender and what, what do they mean. And, and I feel like this is what, what we're looking at um, where culture has said these are entirely unrelated components. They have nothing to do with one another um, and, and they don't really fit together. And, and so for me, like as I look at this, and my job is to help the church understand the world and, and for us to see how they've gotten to that place. And, and likewise, as, as people from the community come in, I want them to understand you know, how, how do we approach this as Christians. And so um, my job is kind of for us to, to look at this and say, how did they get there? How did they get there? And for me, um, a lot of times Christians will say, well, that's just dumb. Or that's just stupid. I can't believe they would think of it like that. Um, and when it comes to this gender and identity and sexuality issue, I rather want us to look at it from the perspective of, I actually think I understand how they got here. I understand how they got there. Because um, if you take God out of the picture, if you take him out of the picture, then how do we know what is really what? How do we know how it all fits together and, and how it makes sense? And so, like, if I were to take a, a VCR and just... You, you drop it back in time 800 years ago and, and leave it for somebody to discover in all of its individual pieces, they would have no clue. They, they went because they have no understanding of how this is supposed to work. And so um, I understand how society has gotten here. I don't agree with it, but I understand that when you look at who we are as humans and we try to deal with the complexity of that, there's, there's a reality where I, if God's not part of it, I think they're searching for something um, and, and with no God to be in charge, they don't really know what they're searching for. And so I hope we can look at this with, with sort of a sympathy as we reason today that God has created these things to fit together, that they're all part of his perfect plan and design, um, and, and that in his perfect plan and design we find our highest worth and our highest value. That it's not in just breaking this all apart and saying, well, I am this or I am this or I do this or I want that. It's really, I find these things in, in who God made me, where identity is a singular, all-encompassing thing, where we're created in his image, we're created with worth and with value in, in its entirety. And so, so who, who I'm attracted to, like who I see when I look at myself in the mirror, or how I want the world to respond to me, as we look at, look at issues of identity and sexuality, and when we look at the idea of, of gender, these are all components of an intricate design that God has designed this world to operate in, in a way that gives him glory. And so um, in the series, we, we've, called, we've called it One Story, where we're looking throughout the scriptures to see how really everything is just telling this one story. Every little individual story is pointing to us to this one gigantic story, even, even the issue of gender. Even when God created gender, we're going to look at the gender creation story. And all of it, all of it has to do, it's all pointing to the reality that, that this world has been corrupted by evil. It's, it's called sin, and it invaded the world. And God, through his son Jesus, is on a mission to rescue and to renew it. Right? And, and even gender has much to do with that. Where, where our perspective as we approach this as created beings, not as beings who are in charge of who we are, but, but we're given some design, um, we look at it and we understand that identity and gender have much more to do with Jesus than with anything else. 
And so, so that's how we approach it. Now, our particular challenge is that when we talk about this issue, we talk about it in a world that looks at truth itself in a different way than what we do. In fact, as I've read and studied, much of the trend for, for how this world approaches truth is to basically say there is no longer any authoritative truth that gets to tell me what to do or who I am or what I am supposed to, to do in life. There's no authoritative truth. In fact, in fact, the generations coming up under us, to them, the greatest, the greatest accomplishment is, is not some career. It's to throw off any expectation that any authoritative truth has put upon them. That, they, that, is, that is the point of their existence for them to claim there is no truth. There is no truth. Individually for them to say there is no truth, which is a fascinating thing if you break it down because the very statement of there is no truth is a truth claim in itself. It's, it's, it's saying, it's true that there is no truth. It is true for me that there is no truth. And again, I, I'm not saying that to say, well, that's dumb, that's idiotic. I, I want us to understand that. You know, a lot of us have kids who are growing up in this generation, and we have to teach them, we have to raise them up. We have coworkers who, who have a different perspective on this. And so what does it look like to love them and to listen to them and to meet them where they're at in an effort to bring them to Christ? So, so in an effort to, to undo the idea of truth, they, they said there is no truth, which is a truth claim. And they said there is no truth. For me, the big question is why? What compels a person to, to want to get rid of any sort of authoritative truth? And it's because, in my opinion, the nature of truth is restrictive. It's restrictive. It, it, truth, if something is true, then it, it means that there's, there are things that are not true. If there is a true, there is right, and it's true that there is right, then it's, it's true there's wrong. And so truth has a restrictive nature to that. And so what society wants is they don't want truth because it's restrictive, and they do want freedom because freedom's a good thing. Fundamentally, we actually really agree with both of those things. We agree that truth is restrictive, and we agree that freedom is a good thing. The difference is Jesus has a different path for us to get there than what our culture has taken by saying we get there without truth. Jesus is going to come along and, and he's going to say that, no, you actually find truth and freedom together, not separate. They're together, not separate. And so John chapter 8 and verse 31, Jesus says, if you hold to my teaching, you really are my disciples. If, if you follow my teaching, you really, you really authentically are my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and, and look at this, the truth will set you free. So from Jesus' perspective, that truth is truth. He understands that it restricts. He understands that there are things that are not true. But in this, he claims that truth is a path to freedom. Truth is indeed restricted, but with Jesus, the restriction is counterintuitive because it's within that restriction that there's freedom. He says, the truth will set you free. Well, how can that be? How can truth be at one moment restrictive and at another moment freeing? How, how, how does that work? I think about it like this. If, if you've ever known a person who's got you know, medical symptoms that have just gone on for a long time, and, and maybe the doctors can't figure out what's wrong, and, and, and they're searching and they're suffering, and, and they don't know, and they're just dealing with all the symptoms, and they're worn down with the symptoms, and nobody really knows what's going on. They don't know what the true, accurate issue is. And then they go to a doctor who finally figures it out. And they go, and, and the doctor can quickly prescribe something that alleviates all of their, their symptoms. And, and, and now they're healthy, and they're flourishing, and, and, and they're full. Um, the doctor has diagnosed 
And the diagnosis has led to a cure, and that cure has brought freedom from the suffering. When Jesus says the truth will set you free, that's the way he means it. Truth, truth will set you free. And in that truth, we find freedom from, we we find the diagnosis. And the diagnosis is that this world is corrupted through sin. But that diagnosis allows us to understand the cure of freedom in Jesus Christ. That we can be forgiven of that sin and be restored. And, And so in a sense, yes, truth does restrict. There's only one way, through Jesus Christ. But in its restriction, we find a path to being restored and whole and flourishing, as God intended us to be. We find freedom. The culture has tried to find freedom in a departure from truth, in saying that we don't need this, that this is old, morality is old school, and so we simply redefine the idea of what truth is. And, and honestly, this new sort of idea of no truth is really not new at all. It's really not even a, it's just a modern way of repackaging this idea of we do whatever we want. You can track it back into the 90s and the 80s and the 60s. You can track it all the way back to thousands of years ago where the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians quotes the phrase of the day, let's eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Let's do whatever we want. And each generation tries to find a clever and more philosophically sounding more psychologically accepted sounding mantra of be yourself, do whatever you want, be your truest self, where right and wrong are really just flavors of the day. But that approach to truth uh, doesn't, diagnose the con- doesn't diagnose the condition that really restricts our freedom in the end. And so that, that approach to truth doesn't offer any more freedom than a wrong medical diagnosis does. So so as we consider Scripture and the truth on gender, I I want us to know, I want us to know, it restricts every single one of us, myself included, it restricts every single one of us in in some way, shape, or form. But in that restriction, we understand who we're made to be, we understand why we're made that way, and in that, in Jesus' truth, we find freedom. That's where we find our freedom. So now that being said, and this is, this is a long sermon. I'm not going to lie. Um, this is longer than I wanted it to be. Uh, it really could be two or three sermons. This is why we had a shorter amount of songs, because I wanted us to have the time to actually sit down and really work through this topic and understand it. Um, so with that being said, one of our values is that everyone's invited, and we mean that. We, we 100% mean that. No matter how much somebody has deconstructed life, no matter what choices they made in their past, um, if we don't like them, if we don't understand this, uh, regardless of how much they have bought into the world's philosophy of truth, we want this to be a place where they can come and hear God's truth. Because the pieces don't find their way back together without God's word. So we're going to have to be good at loving people who are different than us. We're going to have to be good about having relationships and friendships with people who are different than us so that we can help them find their, back, their way back into God, how God designed them, right? And so because of that value, when we talk about it today and as we talk about it anytime going forward, uh, because of that value and because of what we believe God's heart is on this, we will never portray truth as hateful, arrogant, or forceful, right? So we're going to talk about truth, but it's never hateful, it's never arrogant or it's never forceful all of those are contrary to what we believe the heart of god and we they're contrary to another one of our our values where we're going to be a source of grace 
We're, we're going to be this outpouring of grace, which isn't mean-spirited. Spirited is not prideful. It's not controlling. Um, those things, if you look in the dark times of our Christian history, those were true of how the church approached truth. And we don't want anything to do with that. We're going to present truth in the most loving and kind way. And so we'll walk through that this morning within that. And so let's turn to Genesis 2. And uh, you, can, you can read on the screen as well. Discover how gender is. Gender is a component of our identity. It's a means. It, it's, sorry, it's a component of our identity. It's not a means of inequality. But it is a means of intentionality. So it's a, it's a part of our identity. It's not, it's not something about inequality. But it is everything to do with intentionality because each gender will find its fullest purpose and highest value in design. So let's look at it, and we'll kind of talk through it. Um, Genesis 2, verse 20. Uh, Adam gave names to all the livestock. So Adam's the only human created, and then there's a bunch of animal and, and birds and, and so on. Uh, and Adam's job is to, to give them names. Adam gave names to all the livestock, all the birds of the sky, and all the wild animals. But still, there was no, an incredibly important word in the scriptures, there was no helper just right for him. Let's pause. That word helper has been taken to somehow mean that like Adam was here, and, and he didn't have somebody here, and so there was something missing from God's creation. That word helper is not, is not here or here. It, it's, it's not down here. That word helper, in fact, is overwhelmingly used in the Scriptures to define God himself. Where God is again and again the helper, keyword support to his creation. A needed, necessary support to his creation, overwhelmingly used in the Old Testament, that God is his helper. But God looks at Adam and says, says he's lacking, he's lacking a helper. There's no helper just right for him. So, and, and there are those who believe this is sort of a, a metaphorical thing that happens. I happen to believe this is literal. Uh, so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while the man slept, the Lord God took out one of man's ribs, Paul's button. The word for rib here is the Hebrew word selsa, uh, which is not a rib like we would think in our medical terminology. The word rib here is supporting structure. So if you were to build a house, right, and it was like your traditional house shape where you've got the roof and then you've got the walls, like these two sides would be supporting sides. Not these two, but these two sides are supporting sides because they're supporting the weight of the roof. When, when the scriptures talk about taking out the roof, the, literally the phrase is that he's taking out the supporting side of the man. And so while the man slept, the Lord God took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib and he brought her to the man. At last the man exclaimed, this one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. In Genesis 1.26, which before this is sort of the overview of what, what just happened, that the motivation, then God said, let us, let, let us is in the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, let us make mankind in our Father, Son, Holy Spirit image, in our Father, Son, and Holy Spirit likeness. Let's pray. Uh, God, I, I actually really, really love the text that we just read because I believe it, it reconstructs what our world has deconstructed. I ask that you give us wisdom. I ask that our hearts would be willing to allow your truth to, to set above us. 
And God, as we, we deal with stuff, I just ask for just wisdom in how I present uh, your word. In your son's name we pray. Amen. So, God creates Adam. He creates mankind. And then he looks and there's something incomplete, we could say. In fact, if you're tracking through creation, everything God makes, he said, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. He makes it, it's good, he makes it, it's good. And then he creates man. He looks and he sees man as in just man, and he says, this is not good. This is not good. That man, there's something incomplete uh, about man's experience right now. There's another aspect that I want man to have on this earth that that I want humanity to have. Um, There's got to be something more. There's nobody complimentary to. And so God wants us to share in something so sharing something that's both good, fully good, right? Because right now it wasn't good, not good. Um, he wants us to share in something that's both good and something that's godlike. Good and godlike. Because when he creates man, what does he say? And, the, and you call it that emphasis that I threw out there. Let us in our in our. Right? So it's, it's something was not fully complete. And then God comes along and, and says it's not fully complete because it's not really fully like us. They're missing out on something, and that idea is relationship. You you know what relationship is because God created it. Not even the way that sin corrupts it and the bad things about it, but think of the highest, the best relational experiences you've had in life. You know those because God created you to experience those. That all of the friendships, all of the love, all of the laughter, all of the adventures... God said, if it was just one of you, you wouldn't have. And I want you to know it, and I want you to experience it. So God creates someone else that we can share relationship with. And so he introduces the idea of relation to creation. And and so he breaks down the dynamics of there's going to be father, there's going to be mother, there's going to be husband, there's going to be wife. We're specifically within that relationship Emphatically within that relationship, God wants us to experience a likeness to what Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have always experienced within the Trinity. And so when God creates gender, he creates the ground, groundwork for us to experience relationship, for us to enjoy something that is good and godlike, something that he's always known and loved, which is really love itself. Because if there's just one, there's, there's no love, right? And, and so... That's half the story. That's half the story. That God made male and female because he wanted us to have the opportunity to have relationship where there's two different things that have the ability to love each other. Right? And that's half the story. The other half is that this idea that male and female are actually a type serving the archetype. What do we mean by that? It's something early that is going to help us make sense of something that comes later. It's something small that's going to help us appreciate something greater. And so we go to Ephesians chapter 5, and we're jumping all over the place this morning. But Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 31, and and track along with me here. It says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. That should sound familiar, because we just read it. Only we didn't read it here, we read it back in Genesis where the type was there. This was the early, this was the lesser. Now we're at the later, we're at the greater. And Paul's about to explain what this has always been about. This is a profound mystery, 
but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. He says this has always been about the church and Jesus and his love. This has always been about one story of God's love for us. That what we see in marriage is really meant to be a reenactment of God and his love for us because it's all pointing to this one central story. See, here's the thing. It's not that, it's not that when Jesus came and he died on the cross and, and then afterwards the guys in the, who were founding the church were looking for good examples of this. And they're like, you know what? It's actually, it happens to be a lot like marriage. Yeah, yeah, that would be a good analogy. What Paul says is actually, it doesn't happen to be a lot like marriage. It's supposed to be a lot like marriage because that's why marriage was created. This is, this is the issue in a society where we've, we've put romantic relationships as the pinnacle of our existence. As Paul would go, no, no, actually, they're not the greatest. They can be fantastic. I just made up a word, fantabulous. They can be fantastic, but they're, they're only the type serving the archetype. There's an even greater relationship out there for you. This one, this one, the, the husband and wife is, is reenacting it. Gender, gender is, is so much more than sexual attraction. It, it's identity given purpose through divine design. The, we, we cannot distill gender down to a role in a house, even a role in society. It's so much bigger. It's so much grander. God intended so much for it. For it's so much more than even biological. It's spiritual more than it is. I love reading Rebecca McLaughlin's book, 12 Hard Questions Confronting Christianity. If you're a person who really wants to understand how the faith makes sense in our world today, this is a phenomenal book. She's just an incredible author. Um, and and she, she talks about this wrestle of being a very smart, very educated, very successful woman and believing this. And believing this traditional approach to gender. And this is what she says. She says, when I realized the lens for this teaching was the lens of the gospel itself, it started to make sense. With this lens in place, I saw that God created sex and marriage as a telescope to give us a glimpse of his star-sized desire for intimacy with us. This is all meant to point us to the grandest story that exists to, to reconstruct us in a way that reenacts the greatest story of God's love for us. The, the rescue mission, the sacrifice of Jesus will be lived out in millions of Christian marriages to fully and further appreciate his love. Where we struggle with this isn't so much in that idea. Where we struggle with this is, is, is what we've seen in church history, which is sort of the apparent inequality between male and female and the way that they're, they're treated in the scriptures. And so I love to look at Tim Keller whenever we look at where the, the tension points of our faith interact and they touch with the culture. He's just so good at explaining those. Um, and he was actually doing a Google forum uh, uh, and just sharing about his new book. And, and of course, he's sharing the gospel and how Jesus loves us and how he, he died for us and how we find our identity in him. And afterwards, they did a Q&A with the Google employees. And, and like question number one was, traditionally, this is a, a, a hierarchical, hierarchy of male-female in the scriptures that doesn't mesh with our culture, how do you respond to that? 
And he was like, well, I mean, I've got two minutes to answer a, a three-hour-long question, but I'll go for it. And he summed it up in one phrase, which I think is just so pertinent. He says, he says in the Scriptures, male and female are, are equal, but not interchangeable. They're equal, but they're not interchangeable. 100% equal. 100% equal, but they're not the same. And you couldn't, you couldn't take one and replace it with the other and have it be what God intended it to be. They're equal, but they're not interchangeable. And I say that with all the sympathy to a world that doesn't really know how to make sense of it. But if part of this is that idea, then I don't know how we get it back together without it. Right? So equal, but not interchangeable. It's not about inequality. It is about distinction. And the church needs to be a place of total equality in how we value male and female without the need for similarity. The total equality is this. If you want me to prove it to you real quick, I'll prove it to you real quick. In the scriptures, both, both male and female are created in God's image. Both are created in his image, right? Um, and then secondly, when it talks about the end, the end of it all, um, both are equally heirs to his promise, equal heirs, right? So, so you, can't, like you can't get there, and, and that's just the, the short version. You can't get there and, and somehow conclude that they're not equal. It, it, it's not there. Um, but how are they interchangeable then? How are they interchangeable? I look at it like this. Um, I've got two eyes. <laughs> and if, uh, if I take my glasses, which, which my glasses are, you know, the corrective lenses to be able to allow me to see, you all look fuzzy. You look much better right now. <laughs> um, they, if, if I were to take them and I were to go like this, it wouldn't really work. Because this lens is focused for this eye and this lens is focused for this eye. And, and so what we're going to see is that, is that in the scriptures the, the, where there's a different focus for male and female. A different focus for how you carry out this story. And it's not a focus of one eye is better than the other. It's just a different focus. They're equally valuable in, in how God has created us. And so let's, let's look. We'll, we'll go to... Uh, We'll go to the, the wife section, and then we'll go to the husband section, and, and hang with me through it all. It, it'll, I promise it'll be good in the end. Uh, Ephesians 5, 21 through 23, this is the focus for, for the female. It says, submit to, so, so actually, before that, submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. This is to everybody. That's not just to females. Submit to one another. Submit to, everybody submit to one another. That this should be true of you. We, as followers of Jesus Christ, should be people who submit to each other. That we should be willing to, to let go of some of what we desire for the benefit of somebody else. We should be willing to do that for everybody. Even, even there are many times in, why, in, in life where I submit to my wife. I submit to what God has put on her heart and, and something. And I've talked about this before. My, my wife is incredibly generous. And I'm not. But she is. And there are plenty of times when she has an idea for generosity that I don't like. And I, I, I move the pocket. I move the wallet to a different part of the pocket. But I recognize that God, God's doing something there. And, and so it's wise for me to, to see what he's doing there. Um, so, so everybody is submitting to everybody. Then emphatically, emphatically, wives submit to your husbands, uh, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Right? So, so everybody, it's not unique. It's not this is something that only a female does. But it's something emphatic about the focus. Uh, the focus calling here is submission which is so incredibly misunderstood. So, so what is submission? Submission is, is, submission is bringing your strengths to the table to support the given mission. Bringing your strengths to the table to support the given mission. Well, what's the given mission? The given mission is to live out this reenactment of Jesus and his love for the world. 
to support the husband, but only fully really as a means of supporting Jesus himself and his mission. It's one half of a reenactment story about Jesus and his love of the church. Bringing your strengths to the table in a way to support the given mission. It is not. Biblical submission is not that you have to be meek. It is not that you don't contribute. It's not that you do whatever a man says. There's nothing that says a woman can't be strong and powerful and influential. Read Proverbs 31. That woman in Proverbs 31 is incredible. She's successful in just about every area of life she touches. There's nothing in, in the scripture that would suggest the otherwise. Uh, biblical submission is a mission of undying support for Christ's cause. It's saying, I am for you because I am for Jesus. I am for you because I am for Jesus. You know, really, the simplest way to understand it, essentially, it is that you have a submission. Submission is to have a submission. So the primary mission is I'm, I'm going to support Jesus Christ. The submission is I'm going to show, I'm going to reenact I'm going to reenact that by, by respecting and honoring this person. Even, even when they might not deserve it fully. That you would, you would live this out as a means of living out your love for Jesus Christ. No. Does that mean you support your husband to do whatever he wants? No. No. Does that mean you support him to live as he pleases? No. So what are you, what are you supporting him to do? It would be nothing contrary to any of the rest of the scripture's teaching. So, so what is the submission? What is it supporting the man to do? To live out his half of the reenactment story. You know what that is? To lay down his life. To lay down his life over and over and over again. Which is funny because that's what traditionally submission is understood to be. And I'm looking at it and going, but Jesus is the one who died on the cross. Jesus is the one who Literally let his body be the bridge through which we walk through to find salvation. Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ, just as. Not sort of as, not like a little bit like, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That word gave himself up is familiar if you read the Gospels. Because it's used as a reference to the crucifixion. It's a mission of sacrificial love where give himself up means he takes up the cross. Literally the phrase, is, it's the same one for the cross. And so for men, sacrificial love is to take a cross for her daily. Take a cross for her every day. Wow. Culturally and historically, women were treated as property at this point. It was nothing to move on from a marriage as if, as if the woman didn't matter. And Jesus in his teaching just flips that. And Paul comes along and, 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 and he says, hey guys, the way that our society treats women is actually incredibly wrong. Couldn't be more opposite. Um, you know what Jesus did when he carried his cross, when he was beaten, when he had nails put on, in, in his arms and his legs? That's actually how you should love your wife. That's actually how you should, you should treat her. See, true biblical masculinity is the antithesis, the total opposite of any form of abuse or dominance. Couldn't be more opposite. There's so much damage has been done in, done in this area because we see, we see a word headship, and, and headship in, in the scriptures, we think, it, we think, aha, man, I'm in charge. You're in charge of the ability to lay down your life. You're in charge of the ability to, to, to be crucified for her daily. 
to love her so much, to, to not even just love her, but to love the whole idea of being one, the whole idea of the one reenactment story. You know what this is like? This is like when I, when I used to play baseball as, as a kid. Um, I was this size as a 10-year-old. And so my job on the baseball team was to try to hit home runs. I, didn't, I literally didn't grow after fifth grade. It was like the same on my, I went shh, plateaued. It was a center on the basketball team to like the water boy the next year. My job on the baseball team was to hit home runs, right? I was a swing for the fence, swing as hard as you want. So I bat fourth in the lineup, and, and my job most of the time was just try to hit the ball as hard as I want. There were some times when that wasn't the case, where I'd get up, and we need one run to win the game, and there's a guy on third base. And so now the coach would come up to me and say, I, I need you to do something polar opposite of everything that you've been told. I need you to bunt. I'm gonna, you, instead of swinging the bat, you're just going to take it and you're going to face it towards the ball and the pitcher's going to throw it and you're just going to hold it there and let the ball hit it and it's going to dribble a couple of feet. But trust me, um, that's going to be just enough. You'll be out. You, you're not going to make it to first base. You're going to be out. You'll be out by a mile. But th this guy coming home is going to score. He's going to score. You're going to sacrifice. It's called a suicide squeeze. You're going to sacrifice yourself so a run gets across. That, that's what he's talking about here that men on a daily basis were to lay down our lives so that the run can cross and the team, that Jesus Christ and his team scores. That's what it's about, that we would lay down our life. Rebecca McLaughlin, again, coming from a perspective where she struggled with this, when she, she really it clicked for her when she read Ephesians 5.25, which we just read. And this is what she says in the matter. She says, indeed, when I trained my lens on the command to husbands, the Ephesian passage started to come into focus. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. How did Christ love the church? By dying on the cross, by giving himself naked and bleeding to suffer her for her, by putting her needs above his own, by sacrificing everything for her. I ask myself how I would feel if this were the command to wives. Wives, love your husbands to the point of death, putting his needs above yours and sacrificing yourself for him. She says, wow, I understand that actually the submission of submission is actually not near as challenging as what, what God says in a sense where he says you, you've got to die, literally die to yourself and your desires for the sake of your wife. A fascinating perspective. If you're not sold on this in the way that gospels value this equality, just go back to the gospels and, and read through and see the way that Jesus values women. The way he speaks to them, the way that he honors them, the way that he, he says the most amazing things he could say about somebody. And, and it's this woman that everybody else wanted nothing to do with and thought was just, just a, a wreck of a human being. And Jesus will say some of the kindest and most inspiring things to her. Luke chapter 8. Jesus' Jesus's mission supported financially by the careers of women, at least in part. Incredible stuff that we just we tend to over, overlook. There's no inequality. There's just simply differences accomplishing the same mission with a different focus. Um, which, by the way, Christianity will, will likewise offer an equally intense calling for singles. For those of us who aren't married or maybe have no, no attraction, no desire to, to ever be married, no sexual desires or anything, um, that person has, in a sense, an even higher calling because they have no submission. They have no submission. They only have the mission to fully live for Jesus Christ. And Paul says you'll be rewarded immensely for this. You'll be so incredibly influential for this. 
Rebecca McLaughlin, she says that, that what Jesus teaches is it actually depressurizes all demands, the demands that society places on the single person. That there is no you have to. There is no you have to be married by the time you're 25 or 30. You have to have kids. You have to. There is no. There is none. Other than Jesus and what he's called and how he's designed you to be. So as we kind of wrap up, two things that I want us to reflect on. One is the gospel offers clarity in a time of confusion. I mentioned that I think our world is very confused about this. In one sense, they want to do away with the idea of what a typical man or typical woman is. But in another sense, they want to be able to transition and be treated as a typical man or typical woman. And it's like deconstructing and trying to put pieces, about only some of the pieces back together. And it's not surprising if you remove God of the part picture that it doesn't really make sense is just a lot of confusion in fact I spoke with a local missionary on a college campus and um, he said that one of the biggest wrestles for students one of the biggest wrestles for them is the idea of assigned sex it's the thing they have the hardest time with that there was something out there that decided they should be male or female that's the hardest thing for them to wrestle with see what I gain by that is most people in this situation are confused but the confusion about gender is really only just, just kind of pales in comparison to the confusion about much of life in particular. That there is a God who loves you, who created you. And so we offer clarity, but that clarity needs to be biblical, not stereotypical. Uh, masculine and feminine ideals tend to be far more cultural than they are biblical. For instance, like being artistic or being a, a person who sings and dances doesn't make you not a man. We see all those things in Scripture. Being a, a woman that, that likes to, to be successful, that, that wants to be driven, that doesn't, that's not, that's not opposed to any of the Scripture's teaching. Um, the Bible tends to be incredibly freeing. You're, you're born a man, and you're a man. You're born a woman, and you're a woman. And that has no real impact on your hobbies or your employment. It has everything to do with what you're called to be in life. A follower of Jesus Christ with an individual focus for his mission and so when it comes to, to gender, God made you this way. That's a thing you are. You, you may not feel like what society defines as a woman or a man, but God still created you to be that. Right? So uh, second thing then, second thing we need to reflect on is as Christians, we often trample, trample on the tact of the matter while arriving at the fact of the matter. We trample on the, the tact of the matter while arriving at the fact of the matter. I mean, we might get our story straight. We might understand what truth is. But we can hurt people in the process. We've got to be careful. We've got to be cautious. We've got to be wise. We've got to be considerate. Um, interacting with uh, our director of women's ministry here and just asking her some of her perspective on this. And um, her statements were, if someone's not a believer, this shouldn't be the first thing you talk about. This shouldn't be step one. <laughs> this shouldn't be where you, you go to. I mean, if you're going to be called out and where somebody, somebody says, what do you believe about this? Says, sure, sure. But her statement was was can we talk about my whole faith and not just part of it? If we can talk about the whole thing and not just one individual component. If we're going to talk about it, we're going to talk about it in the, the whole sense where you and I have a fundamental disagreement on how we arrive at truth. You, you think that this is just kind of, we, we do our best with this. I think this was intentional and designed, and so we arrive at this where we look at this as we're creation, and you look at it like we're creators, and you tell it what to do, but we, we, so we see it differently. The tax side is we have to have the humility to know that they're going to have struggles that we just can't comprehend. 
And we're going to have to love them. We're just listening, listening to uh, Rosaria Butterfield, who, who comes from a, a college physician where she's teaching these gender issues in support of the world's view of this, and then coming to Christ over years of going over to a, a pastor's house for dinner. Years. Years of relationship on that side. And part of it, honestly, is being willing to live out our own limitations well. Like you, if we're not going to get husband and wife right, if we're not going to get sacrificial love and submission right, boy, it's really hard to go up to somebody and say, you should get sexuality right, or you should get gender right. Let, let's, let's, let's knock our own reenactment out of the park. Right? Because I, again and again, I hear things like, well, well, I know it says that I should treat my spouse this way, but you don't understand. And, and I say this with total sympathy. I understand that your situation is, is unique and challenging. But at the core of this, it says, as to the Lord at both times. That, that as much as that might be a challenging thing, it's really about Jesus more than anybody else. And, and I say that with all the compassion that, that, I, that I can. Um, so let's do our best to live this out authentically. Because Jesus bids every one of us to lay down who we think we are to be something much more to be something incredible as his creation. And who I am takes a backseat, who I believe I am takes a backseat to who I'm designed to be. And here's the, here's the beauty of identity in Christ is, is it's yours freely. You don't, have to, you don't have to live a certain way to be loved by Jesus. You don't have to look a certain way to be loved by Jesus. It's, 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 he values you, he loves you, or, Greg Strand, who's the, the head of theology in our denomination, the EFCA, he writes in the book Evangelical Convictions. He writes, are we as human beings like orphans stranded on a desert, deserted island in the middle of the vast expanse of empty and lifeless space with nobody even knowing that we are lost? In our postmodern world, many think so. And they have given up the quest for some cosmic connection to establish our identity. If this is all it is, then Greg Strand's right, then, then every person in this world is left with the feeling of, I'm just an orphan left on a deserted island and nobody cares I'm even gone. But the scriptures teach something different. The scriptures teach that as creations of his, we are deeply wanted children. And he wants nothing more than to be reunited and rekindled with us, to, to embrace us in his arms and to love us. We're, we're the bride and he's the groom. And he left the safety and the comfort of heaven on this incredible rescue mission to bring us back to himself. See, Jesus offers us to understand who we really are, who he really made us to be, and, and, and what life is really a, about at the end. And it's wrapped up entirely in the central value that you are loved by God himself. Let's pray. God, this is a lot. <laughs> I pray, Lord, that we just take the time to reflect on this. Lord, if my words were imperfect or flawed, I, I ask for forgiveness from you, from anybody out there. At the end of the day, I just know you designed this to work as components playing a role in one story the grand story of the fact that Jesus Christ gave his life on the cross so that I could find life after death. 
And my marriage is about that. My identity is about that. My gender is about that. It's all about that. Father, I pray that we would be people who reenact this well. I pray that those of us who are single would just be sold out to this mission. And I pray, Lord, that we would be really, really committed to loving people no matter how differently they think than us or no matter how much of a journey it's going to take for you to bring them back. We love you and ask this in your son's name. Amen.